0: Hello and welcome to The Reset, a mental health podcast without all the bollocks. I'm Sam Delaney. My guest this week is the writer, broadcaster, filmmaker and very funny man, Danny Wallace. I've known Danny for a few years now and always been a huge admirer of his work. From writing numerous best-selling books such as Join Me, Yes Man and Fuck You Very Much, to his presenting on radio and TV, to his wonderful columns, he effortlessly combines humour and intelligence in a really unique way. His award-winning podcast, Monatomy, which he hosts with former Reset guest Phil Hilton, is also superb. I can recommend digging into its archive if you haven't already. Danny's always made me laugh, but I've never had many chats with him about the stuff going on inside his head, so I was pleased that he agreed to join me as a guest on this week's episode, where he opened up a bit about anxiety, awkwardness, the pressure of parenthood, and the pain of losing his father. He was as entertaining as ever, but also really honest and open in this chat. And I hope you enjoy listening. Danny Wallace, welcome to the reset. Thank you so much for having me, Sam. It's nice to see you as always. It's great to see you too, mate. Um, known you for many years. Never really had, uh, never really s- spoken to you about the subjects we're going to talk about today. Um, which are, of course, related to stuff like mental health and feelings and all the rest of it. In, in fact, mm. of course, quite famously, Dunny, you are quite awkward. Um, you know, <laughs> the, the, your, your, your columns often refer to, to your awkwardness in, in certain situations, and I suppose that may extend to discussing feelings. Is that right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, and did you notice you called me Dunny there, which, of course, is the Australian for toilet. Uh, and then you then you talked about awkward situations. A lot of the awkward situations that I would talk about in in those columns that you mentioned, all those books, um, are those internal thoughts. Half of the column would always happen internally. It's like, what did that person mean by that? How do I, at the start of a podcast, highlight the fact that within seconds he's called me the same as an australian toilet yeah you know um, when someone hands you the, the 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 change what why why have they done it in that way or why yeah. why didn't they like my joke that i just made you know um yeah. <laughs> so so these things will always go through my head and thankfully I'm, I'm 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 less awkward when i speak but my i have the brain of an, an awkward child
0: yeah it's really interesting because uh whilst it is funny and to so many of us really familiar um i suppose you know i don't want to Dig too deeply into it, but it can be, and I know because I have awkward thoughts as well all the time in in my head. And you know, obviously, I'm now thinking, shit, I called him Dunny. That's you know, maybe I'm taking <laughs> offence. This is this is terrible. This is let's abort this whole thing. No, but like no. I do have those conversations. So many of us do, but there is a point at which it can actually they're intrusive thoughts and they can become problematic, aren't they, in your day to day life?
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. Which is why I've always tried to make the best of them um so for example when you called me danny there was no way that that was a bad thing um the best thing for me to do would be to leave it however you gave me something like a little present something i could use and that's how i've always sort of treated most of the bad things that happened to me in life um thankfully i have outlets that i can use which are a really good way of coping with bad things that happen Like, And I don't mean like the the huge bad things, but just the everyday um, drains on your will to continue (laughs) in society. You know, the unfair parking ticket or the person who just doesn't give you the benefit of the doubt or the little things that sort of could ruin your day or your week if you let it. I always end up thinking... I can use that somehow. Uh, There's something I can do with that. Is that a story? Is it a joke? Is it just something I can say in the pub? Is it something I could maybe use on the radio? Is it a jumping off point for something bigger? So for example, one of the biggest examples of that was I, I, um, I wanted to buy a hot dog with my son and there was a hot dog place and it just sold hot dogs. And we thought that would be easy. We want a hot dog. They make hot dogs. And to cut a long story very short, I didn't get a hot dog for an hour and I ended up being thrown out of the place. And <laughs> it really affected me. <laughs> it affected totally me for good. days. I was I was driving past that place at night and giving it the finger. And I started to think every driver on the road is getting in my way on purpose. It's all like a dark conspiracy from shadowy forces from Big Hot Dog. And <laughs> I ended up writing a, a TripAdvisor review for the first time in my life. And those 300 words turned into an 80,000-word book um, all about rudeness and about why we couldn't get our shit together to do the most simple transaction in the world. And whether I was to blame somehow because I had those thoughts, maybe I interrupted her, did I do something wrong? But I, I thought my behavior was okay. Had I just caught her in a bad day? Or maybe she was a psychopath. We just don't know. So I analyzed it from all angles and that was a prime example of a going way way out of my way to win an argument <laughs> and B <laughs> using something bad to create something good um hopefully so that's an extreme example but yeah i do that every day
0: but also what i like about it is is that you know not you know of course not everyone has got the same outlets as you and and certainly yeah. don't have the same ability as you to turn these things into sort of entertaining stories however there is something universal in the if you can step back and look at even bad inconvenient or stressful situations as amusing or entertaining yeah. like yeah. an observer that really helps doesn't it when you can laugh at what's going on even though it's a negative situation
1: yeah if we are all you know there's that thing we're all the stars of our own films and when something bad is really happening to us, we feel it. So, so, and I'm not when I say these bad things. I'm not talking about huge, major, life changing um, pieces of awfulness. I'm talking more about like those those things that just make everything a slog. Um, where you feel an injustice, say, if you can take that step back and you can be the observer or the narrator and you can look at the person doing it to you and come up with something, some motivation or some line in your head or some joke about it, or imagine yourself telling people about that person later on. Because we all love that. When someone's really rude to us, because this whole book about rudeness made me really think about it. When someone's really rude to us, you if I told you, right, Sam, On my way to this podcast, I met the rudest man in the world. You immediately, you're rubbing your hands together because you want to know. You are like who who, and what because you're desperate to be as outraged as I am and then we'll bond over the ridiculousness of it. And then immediately, as I start speaking, you will start thinking about your own story, about someone who is rude to you because you want to share that with me. And that way, we are together uh, against the world. And... We all do it all the time and it's exciting. And it gives us a, um, like a, a, quite a boring but unifying enemy in, you know, those people, those people that do that thing. Oh, I hate them. Here's another example. Um, And so if you can get to that point where you almost celebrate the awfulness of the situation, because you can use it to bond or to talk or to, laugh or to share um then that's a really useful skill to cultivate
0: yeah and, and it's like it it is a strong bonding that source of bonding isn't it because the other thing is you think you there's always a creeping sense like like you said in the hot dog situation is was it me and that's why sometimes yeah. you need to share it as well i know I, I i'm i often am like second guessing i'm often thinking am i the dickhead here Am I the arsehole? And so the the good thing about going and telling someone the story is Mm -hmm. that you're you're prey, Of course, it's not particularly (laughs) reliable because very few people are going to listen to your biased version of events and go, (laughs) yeah, you're the arsehole. Although it has happened. It has happened. (laughs) Even my wife has occasionally said, yeah, I think you need to look at yourself in that situation.
1: (laughs) Well, that's good, right? That's good because... You know we control the narratives, so of course we're going to be the 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 fallen hero in it. But when we have someone that's honest enough to, as long as you haven't got the ego to then get angry at them and then turn it into a weeks long argument because they wouldn't side with you about the the, the traffic conductor. <laughs> um, but it's it's really it's big highs and big lows. And and when like the other day I, I drove through Bristol and I got a ticket for going through their clean air zone. Fair enough, I didn't know about it, but fine. And they sent me a bill and it, was, um, it seemed to be 60 quid. And so I paid it. And then they sent me another one for a further 120 quid because of some little bit of small print or whatever, yeah. something had to be paid. So I said, oh, look, the system isn't the best. Here, here's what I would do, but um, I've paid the 60 quid. And this man wrote back to me, we'll call him Ben. And he was just like, no, that's it, done. And I hated Ben so much. And then I wrote a little thing and another lady wrote back and she went, okay, don't worry about it. And her name was Rebecca. And I absolutely loved Rebecca Yeah, because one person had decided, computer says, no, I'm going to ruin your day. And the other one came in on my side from the same place and made me feel so warm towards Bristol city council and (laughs) anyone who's ever worked there. I, that minor kindness has changed radically my opinion and my week in my day just because it felt like there's a human out there. So, yeah, it's it's amazing, these little things, the, the effect that we can have, the t- tiny impacts a small decision can make on
0: a stranger. It's funny, on, uh, you know, this being a mental health pub, we talk so often about the very big things that can affect us, like, you know, a big senses of failure or shame or guilt, loneliness, all these things. But actually, the reality for so many of us in our day-to-day lives is that it's actually an accumulation. There's a phrase that um, uh, that I heard years ago in a, in a sort of a group meeting that I, I use a lot, which is it's not the elephants that kill you, it's the ants, right? Yeah. Which is, uh, you know, like for most people, the shit that drags us down is the accumulation of tiny, sometimes imperceptible stresses and strains that just build yeah. up throughout any day. And I guess that's what... You, you know, you're so good at dealing with, you're so good at sort of talking and writing about as well, but it's really real, isn't it? I mean, it can, oh, yeah. you have a situation like that one. I mean, I'm trying to claim travel insurance at the moment, right, mm-hmm. for a cancelled flight through American Express. And I mean, it's been going on for weeks, Danny. I'm going round in circles (laughs) and just like the passwords that need remembering and the documents that need downloading and the sums that I keep needing to do for the precise amount that I think (laughs) I'm owed. I mean, honestly, it's like And no one can. No one's going to take that seriously. When you go, I'm really stressed out because of this thing. Because I mean, the most I'm looking to get is a couple of hundred quid. But also, it's like the principle of it, and it can drive you absolutely round the bend, can't it? And I think so many people are dealing with this. Yeah. Oh,
1: absolutely. It's 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 a cavalcade. you know. The, all those phrases exist for a reason. The store that broke the camel's back. It's the principle of the thing. And I think there is a real sense um, that I have with, with a lot of people of, of, of disappointment where you go, oh, I wouldn't have done that. I wouldn't have done that to you. I wouldn't have said it like that. I wouldn't yeah. have put it that way. I wouldn't have made you do that. I wouldn't have made you feel that way. So you sort of feel like why why do you and I'm sure we'll get to the these are obviously we're starting with the tiny things here, mm. the, the minor inconveniences and the, and the and the and the and the low level anxiety. And I, I do think I probably, even though I've always been pretty happy go lucky, I've always had like and particularly in the past few years, I think, probably since having kids as well, like a, a low level constant anxiety that 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 runs in the background like a hum like a sort of tinnitus. And my mum had it uh, with me, I'm an only child. And so I was this like, you know, I was I was the kid. Um, and, and I think she wanted many, uh, but I was the one. And so the idea of um, roller coasters, for example, I think has been ingrained in me that this is not a fun thing, these are death traps. And I've never been on a roller coaster. And I don't think I ever will. I w- but I would let my kids go on roller coasters if mm-hmm. they want to. I took my kid, my kid, my eldest is is very much into aviation, and I can't stand in his way. You know, when I I remember talking to my dad about it and going, this terrifies me a bit. I think because of the way I grew up. Um, you know, he wants to be a pilot, but you know, there's loads of pilots and very few air uh, crashes and stuff. But still, he's a kid, and uh, and my dad was just like, he can't stand in his way. And I realized that he was right. And so now I have to take him to this little village and stand around with loads of old men while my son goes up in a glider and flies around in the sky where I can't even see him Um, with a grown-up. But I don't know who the grown-up is. It could be anyone. (laughs) And then arrives back 25 minutes later, um, having seen things up. I'll never see, because I'm not going up in a glider. Yeah. <laughs> but but it's it, sometimes it's, it's accepting that you have that anxiety, but not inflicting it on others, which I think is yeah. um, quite an important thing to
0: allow them their decisions without your prejudice. That's hard when you become a parent, isn't it? Really hard. <laughs> I mean, you know, it sounds like you're doing well in terms of your son. But have you found it difficult in fatherhood to, like, sort of almost hide your own concerns and anxieties around them?
1: Yeah, I think because, you know, we remember our childhoods. There's a cliché thing. You want your kid to have the childhood that you had. And what you remember (laughs) is endless summer holidays and Mm -hmm. going, leaving the house at nine in the morning on your bike and coming back, maybe for lunch, maybe not, having lunch at someone else's house without telling anyone, Um, and then getting back about five-ish, knackered you know your skin burning from <laughs> no no 1980 sun cream and yeah. endless football with your pals in random fields you're probably not allowed in um and you want some of that for your kid and in fact they're upstairs on their ipad probably you know uh facing more danger than, than you did uh, on the random suburban streets um and so you yeah so i, I try not to uh Uh, impose any of that or even show that I'm feeling it sometimes while being sensible and trying to instill decent safety values in, which is depends on the personality of the kid. My first two absolutely get it. My my other one, I mean, he's insane uh, in terms of the risks that he wants to take. Um, And you know, he's six and he's the kid at the clip and climb climbing center that everyone is staring at because he's like 300 feet in the air. Yeah. Uh, because we took our eye off him for two seconds, and he's at the very top, and we're all like, thats I don't think small children are supposed to be up there. And and yet the same is true when I took my son gliding for the first time, and he went up, and he got into this little fiberglass thing, and it was all exciting, and I had to hide my fear and make sure he was comfortable, and i have done all my research. And then suddenly this other plane arrives, calls his plane, and he just goes up, up, up. Up into the air until it gets smaller and smaller and smaller, and I realise I have no idea where my son is, and I can't see him, and there's no way of tracking him. But he's up there; he's he's thousands of feet in the air, and I he's 13, and either I'm a great dad, or I'm going to be in the papers tomorrow. <laughs>
0: <laughs> do you know what yeah. I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's so it's, yeah, suppressing anxiety. Do Do you see any any rhyme or reason to the fact that your youngest has that sort of particular daredevil element to him do you think that's anything to do with him being the youngest can you see any input from you or do you think these things are random i have so little experience
1: because i am that only child so i grew up in a very quiet house listening to grown-up conversations um surrounded by books and radio four and johnny cash albums um sounds wonderful (laughs) <laughs> yeah, and no conflict, really. Um, yeah. So I I had to, when my first two were sort of having their arguments and stuff, or there was a bit of meanness sometimes, it was so alien to me, and I didn't really know how to deal with it. I just had to be the grown-up. Mm. Um, but I think that probably meant I didn't understand it as well as I could have because I hadn't been in that situation with sibling rivalry or jealousies or just being annoyed at each other you know and so i think probably the third one coming along was just like well you lot are all doing your stuff uh what i mainly have is loudness and that seems to get me noticed and also stuff seems fun i want to do what you're doing so mm-hmm. i think he just throws himself into life going well you're all doing it you know and yeah. um, and 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 he, and he does he's the, he's the sporty one you know um, he, he's the 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 one with some sporting prowess that skipped a generation. My dad was a brilliant footballer, uh, and his dad was a brilliant footballer. Played um, for Macclesfield, um, and then it skipped me, and it's gone into my youngest. So yeah, I never had that football bonding.
0: Um, your childhood really does sound wonderful, actually. Um, that that sort of peacefulness and and presumably, like having been around listening to adult conversations and absorbing their cultural taste. do you think that played a role in you being such a creative person who uses your imagination so much? Uh, Do you think that that was what sort of created the person you became? I think um, a lot of my
1: parents, because we moved around a lot. And so I always had to make friends fast. I was always the new kid. Um, On holiday, I didn't have anyone to play with, so I had to make friends fast. Mm. Um, I think that helped me, weirdly, with stuff like presenting, um, because presenting is walking out as the new kid on your own in front of a bunch of strangers and going, Hey, how are you? I've got this. Yeah, It's going to be great and making them like you and, and hopefully making sure they feel you like them and that's how i grew up and in terms of yeah my 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 parents and the people that would come round would all be my dad was an academic and my mum too and so the people who would come round would tend to be connected with um languages or with um literature or poetry um all of it in German, by the way. So I mean, it wasn't like I could read this stuff, right. but I got a sense of these quite important people coming around um, from East Germany um, at a time where, you know, you couldn't really go to East Germany as as an academic. My dad was spied upon. All this kind of, you know, there was a, there, it was a it was an exciting time because it was a, the most suburban you could be because I was in like Loughborough at that point in the eighties, um, riding my BMX. But at the same time, the wall was sort of falling and all these stories kept coming out about different people who'd been spying on my dad. So it was the most suburban and yet the most sort of international thing at the same time. Um, But I think, yeah, it probably informed, it probably made me want to be around interesting people, which Mm -hmm. I've managed to do um, because they set the bar
0: quite high. You talk about your dad. I know that you um, uh, lost him uh, a few years ago. Now I've heard you speak a couple years ago. That. Yeah, yeah. On the excellent, on your excellent Monatomy podcast uh, with mm. our mutual friend Phil, uh, yeah. and I think it was the episode with Adam Buxton where you were all sharing stories about your experiences of that. Um, how, how did how did that experience affect you?
1: Um. Yeah. probably the biggest, biggest thing that's ever happened to me. Um, and it affected me, uh, very deeply. Of course it would. I mean, he was amazing and my best friend and, and I have, you know, I had a lot of kind of mates who were older, who were disappearing. And one of them said to me before he went, because he knew he was going, he said, I just feel like I've been, I've been asked to leave a party I'm really enjoying. And I knew exactly what he meant with with that, the unfairness of it, the idea that, is this it? The idea that this is the best system we have. And when it happened with Dad, I couldn't really believe the finality of it. It's so stupid to say, but when it happens and you realize That's it, every memory, every uh, moment is now only yours. It really hit me when I drove back around Loughborough recently, I was driving to Nottingham or Leicester or somewhere and I thought, well, I'm gonna just swing by Loughborough and I drove down our old street and everything seemed much smaller and I, I just saw lots of old moments, just little things that we'd done together, you know, me spraying him with a hose pipe, him chasing me with a bucket. And um, yeah, just those, those moments that were now just mine really. And so, yeah, so it was the biggest thing that ever happened to me and it hit me hard. And it's that, that thing of those waves of grief that you can't predict are going to come where you are just, uh, you know, not to be too melodramatic, you just start find yourself by a window faking, heaving, crying, um, not able to stop. But it's cleansing and it's good and it, and, it, and it helps you. And it's just love. It's just love pouring out of you. Um, but it's, yeah, it's very, very difficult. And you have to explain to your kids and you have to do strange little things like go through his desk or check the last email sent, make sure there's nothing that needs to be tied up. Um, you laugh as well at some of the ludicrous things that happen. Um, you remember strange things. Before he died, he dropped a big tin of brown paint that he just bought at B&Q in the car park near the co-op. And I loved that because he, he, he would have been so embarrassed. Um, but I was like, you know, he made his mark there. And I was sad when they cleaned it up. The council cleaned it up. And I was like, no, that was dad's. That was dad's. That was dad's mess. And um, yeah, you get asked strange questions. You know, do you want curtains um, when the coffin goes through? Things you've never thought about. And a very strange moment as well when you leave the, when you pick up the ashes and you're walking back to your car, carrying your dad like like he's a baby you know what i mean like that kind of you're cradling so so i had all these experiences that i did not want um and that no one does because that is a really weird part of your life when you are given a promotion you did not want and did not ask for but you are now you've been moved up a rank in the family whether you like it or not you are now I was always you know I was always like there a linchpin um but I wasn't at the top and now I feel like I'm closer to the the top of things and so that's a very strange thing to get your head around um that that person who had that job and did it so brilliantly is now
0: retired if you like (laughs) um and and how have you I mean has it got easier have you found ways of coping, or is it just a a case of riding it out and uh, and and that those waves of grief, as you describe, come and you what get more used to them, or you just you know they're going to come, you just have to sort of ride it out?
1: Yeah, um, it was difficult right at the very beginning because it was sort of lockdown time. Um, it was going to take a while to get a funeral. We weren't going to have really anyone there. Uh then suddenly it snowed and so we were trapped in the house. So it's sort of lockdown and snow. So everything's super quiet. So I would just go for long walks and try and, you know, breathe air. I drank too much. I was not uh active in any way really. I would just be trying to do the work that I needed to do and get through. And um and carry on, and the whole thing. I mean, when I when I found out it was happening, it was like an anxiety dream. You know those uh, those dreams you have where you need to get to the door, and suddenly your feet aren't working properly, or your knee goes. Uh, but and then you grab the doorknob, but your hand goes through it, or it slips, or it's slippy, or something. That was me racing to dad when it happened because I was out. In an old office I had, which was out um, on an old airbase, and I realized I needed to get back quickly. And all these country roads, wherever I went, it was just like the, the oldest lady in the world in the smallest car would mm-hmm. suddenly pull out in front of me. And all I could see through the through the rearview mirror was just like a pair of knuckles holding a <laughs> holding a steering wheel, as this little old lady was just pootling along. And I couldn't get round her because there's trucks coming. Then I finally get onto the main road, and just as I get onto the main road, a police motorcyclist glides out in front of me and is there to calm the traffic so that we all have to drive at, like, 20 miles an hour or something. And I'm just banging the wheel and swearing, and I can't believe life is doing this to me. I can't get there. And I'm a good boy. I was raised as a good boy. Anyone who wears a hat, yourself included, Sam, um, has an actual authority that I, 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 I must respect. And so to confront a policeman for me was a big thing. But I just broke away from the pack, went around them, went right next to him, and he looked so angry at me. And I went down the window, I did the window, and I was just like, my dad won't wake up, and I'm going to him. And the fear in that moment on that lad's face, he lost 20 years. He was a policeman, so he was a grown-up. But as yeah. soon as I said that, I realized this guy's like 24. Yeah. And he had fear. And I think because he sensed that this was a, a big life moment and visceral, and one that he will have one day. Yeah. And he just went, go. He just went, go. So I floored it and uh, and got back. But that was a horrible half an hour of, <laughs> of a journey. So I think that um, – yeah to answer your question sorry that was in a very roundabout way but yeah it has got better time does help a lot you you it never feels real or good
0: um but you you can you can get through it you're very prolific in your career i'm just wondering if is your sort of prolific output as a writer and broadcaster and filmmaker and all these other things, is that sort of in some ways always been driven by a certain low-level anxiety? Yeah, probably. Um, Probably.
1: I I feel guilty. Guilty Mm. if I'm not doing something. Guilty if I'm not working. Guilty if I don't have a project. I can reward myself sometimes if I've done a load of work by watching a film, maybe. Um, But even then, I'm getting, you know, itchy. And then afterwards, I'm like, maybe I should just come up with something or do something because it's survival and after 30 years or so of it, you get tired. You know, I feel like because yeah. I started when I was a teenager. So I feel that I'm I should be retiring soon. But you know, but but at the same time I can't. Um, and yeah, it's that need to just keep on cycling, but keep on doing things that you enjoy or that challenge you or that really that are fun the plan's always been to try and do what's fun, but do it well so you get asked to have more fun maybe Mm. somewhere else. And things go quiet, um, and then they pick up somewhere else, and so you focus on that for a bit, and then that goes away, and then maybe something behind you. So you're spinning around and and just sort of trying to keep doing things Mm. in your own way, in the way you do them, but for different projects. Um, Yeah. So, and I think probably you're right, a lot of that comes from it's like having Catholic guilt without being Catholic. Um, yeah, it's it's always thinking I need to be I need to be doing something, and then also, you know, your life changes. So you go from doing that stuff because it's fun when it's just you, to doing that stuff because it's fun and it's just you and your partner. And then you get one kid, then two kid, three kid, and then you're like, I think I'm doing this just to keep everything going. Just to, just to yeah. sort of I've forgotten the fun bit. Now it's like. You know, it's not that you're manufacturing fun or it's synthetic fun, it's it's still something that you love, it's just that you have to now. Mm. Um so yeah, yeah. So it can I, I suppose it's it develops. Fu- it's funny it. though,
0: in in the paths that we have chosen, it's um it's always gonna I guess result in that kind of anxiety and guilt just being there all the time. And I suppose that's the price you pay in return for choosing to do almost exclusively fun things for a living yeah, yeah. it's also it's, it's also complain. yeah it's also funny when it's like you are responsible for kids like we both are but you're you're out you're, you're the way in which you put food on the table remains <laughs> basically mucking about and the conversations yeah. you have with your kids i don't know if you have funny conversations with your kids or your kids take the best yeah. my kids refuse to accept that I work or have a job of it, of any sort. And if I try <laughs> to tell them that I do, they rip to shreds the fact they see me sitting in this little office all day on my microphone, almost always dressed in leisure wear, you know. Uh, <laughs> th- th- do you have any of that sense? I mean, obviously, your, your, your parents were academics. That's very proper grown-up work, you know. Yeah. Uh, my my mum, you know, was out n- nine till five at, at least and kind of coming back and had a proper pay slip and all that. And that's yeah. what I associate with being an adult and adult responsibility. So I personally, you know, feel somewhat, uh, I feel somewhat inadequate a lot of the time as a father yeah. figure because it doesn't quite conform with the sort of idea we had of parental figures growing up, I don't suppose. I think you're absolutely right. And I think mine are at the age, at the
1: minute, and I think probably the fact that, uh, you know, after lockdown and stuff like that, they were spending less time at other people's houses, so they didn't see mm. what other people's parents do for jobs. So mm. I'm the norm, right? I am the norm in, in, mm. in, in terms of parental responsibility. So if I go, listen, I'm really sorry, I've got to go away for a couple of days, and they say, are we up to? I say, I have to go and commentate on World's Strongest Man. That is ludicrous. Right. What a stupid thing for a dad to say. And yet they're like, you know, they're really grateful. Oh, yeah, you work really hard. And, you know, it's it's like you do feel guilty because you're this there, you know, know. commentating on a man lifting a heavy thing over and over again. Um, (laughs) Yeah. That's 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 actually, nice. it's
0: actually it's actually awesome though isn't it uh my kids would not be oh you work so hard they'd be like you're an absolute joke do you get paid <laughs> for that and i go yeah, yeah. and they go well that's ridiculous you know <laughs> <laughs> <No, laughs> pull yourself no, I, together so yeah so you're lucky to have supportive kids um yeah. like that and i suppose as well it's not you know in some ways i think well if you are the norm you're someone who's you know, making a living out of doing things you're passionate about and being creative and you don't have to answer to a boss. And that's not such a bad, but you, you're you still regarded by them and seen by them to be someone who is hardworking and responsible. And so the fact that you can show them you can be both actually is quite a wonderful thing.
1: I hope so. I've never wanted a boss and I worked in an office only briefly. And although you have, you know, people who are Kind of, you know, boss figures for different things. You're still in a position where you are respected enough. They ask your opinion, they don't tell you to do stuff, which I think I've been spoiled by now. And I think I'd find it very difficult. And I hope I haven't sold life wrong to them. I hope they realize that there will be bosses, there will be rules, there will be things you have to do, there'll be places that expect you there on the dot. Yeah, um, you might have to dress a certain way. You, you won't get to make all the decisions. Um, mm. People will ignore your input from time to time. I hope that I haven't, in a, in a sense, prepared them for some of the disappointments and uh, drudgery uh, that that inevitably they will want to go through because they're not drawn to the same things I am, mm. um, which I think is cool. You know, like I say, my eldest wants to be in aviation. I've never met anyone. At 13 more dedicated or more certain uh, that he wants to be a commercial airline pilot um, mm. he subscribes to airline magazines he makes notes at night watching pilots giving live youtube tutorials mm. or lectures i just hear the tap 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 of the keys upstairs um you know my middle one quite a fashionista would like to do costume design for films which at nine I, I didn't even realise happened. And then the little bundle of energy who wants to play for Arsenal.
0: So, yeah. you know, we'll, we'll we'll see what happens. Yeah. Well, it's good they've all got a target um, and know what they want to do in such a, a sort of an eclectic range of things. I think that's fantastic. Um, Danny, before I let you go, forgive me blowing smoke up your ass at this point. Um, you may find it awkward, but one thing you know about you is you, you've been tremendously successful and prolific in, in uh, everything you've done. But and I really mean this, like so I know, obviously, I know lots of other people who, who are sort of broadly in, in the industries you work in, and it's very rare to find someone who is down to earth and doesn't appear to have developed a, you know a big a big ego. That's certainly something oh. that I think about you. And I I think you're widely regarded in that sense. So um it's a bit of a fluffy question, but what is your perspective on that? Because there are there have been very big highs in your career, you know, where mm. you've You know, had your movie, your books turned into Hollywood movies, and all these (laughs) best, you know, best-selling books, and all so many different things that have gone absolutely great for you, and you've managed to, I assume, at least outwardly, keep your feet on the ground. What do you put that down to? Um, Well, thank you, and I think part of it
1: is um, realizing there's always tomorrow. Um, realizing that, however great today goes, you're gonna have to do something else tomorrow, um because today's gone. Um, part of it is is I like to have fun, and the best way to have fun with people is to get on with them. And I'm drawn to people who sort of think like me or who where we can have fun together. I think that's a big part of it, isn't it? Better that we all have fun together. Yeah, absolutely. What's the best way? Well, it's not to be a dick to each other for a start. Yeah, that's
0: like. There's a, a lot like of a serious. There is a lot of seriousness around in terms of men at the moment, yeah. and that sounds daft. But when you look at like the rise of uh, at the extreme end of the scale, you've got your Andrew Tate. But even at the sort of more benign end of the scale, I notice there's so much around kind of being the very best you can be. You know, mm-hmm. being like some sort of, you know, elite performance kind of podcasts are rife everywhere. And that's <laughs> yeah, all yeah, fine. Yeah. I'm, I'm not, I'm not against people kind of trying to improve themselves. Of course not. But for me, a lot of it is about a, a lot of intensity about yeah. man being the very best you can be. And that, that kind of gets very, very serious. And yeah you know, I am like you, I kind of prefer to have fun and prefer yeah. to see life as a bit absurd. Cause I find that quite a good coping mechanism. And yeah. I think it's a shame. There's a lot of young men who are sort of growing up with a lot of pub- like, you know, the sort of public figures who they aspire to nowadays. It's all about perfection, high performance, yeah. being the best it's person ridiculous. you can be. And it's, it's, it's sad, isn't it? It is sad. It's, it's very sad, you know, um,
1: you can't take everything so seriously and you can't expect, <laughs> you, have to, you have to think about what makes you happy and what you can do. And if what you can do makes you happy, then that's what you should do and you'll be all right. You mentioned Andrew Tate, right? There's a great picture that they sent out and it is Andrew Tate at the end of a big long table and he is eating some meat, right, with his fingers, and he's all getting there. He's got big muscles. And yeah. then, almost like the Last Supper, there's all these other big men, all sort of chiseled and, and, yeah. and muscles, all grabbing things. And it said something like, what would you rather do? You know, hang out with this bunch or, or hang out with us, the skeletal crew, or whatever they call themselves. Yeah. You know, <laughs> talk. and I saw the picture, and I was like, what are they all doing? Like, what? why are they there? What are they, what is that? What kind of meeting is that? Who sits around with their pals like that? Not one of them is smiling. Not one of them is having fun. <laughs> they all look furious. Are they gonna invade something? There's only about nine of them. Like, like, what are they, are they hatching a business? There's no, there's no, and I thought about that versus my table at the pub where the only entry requirement is that you sit down and have fun. Maybe you tell a story, you laugh, or you're nice to each other. That, that's where I want to be. I want to be with those people, the ones that aren't taking themselves seriously, the ones that aren't striving for that ridiculous perfection, the ones that, to go back to right at the top, we were talking about, they want to tell me about something stupid that just happened in their life, something that annoys them that they can share with us and will make better. A friendship versus an army. Um, that That's that's what kids should be aspiring to. Um, you know, going to bed, but hearing downstairs, their, friend, their, their parents have got friends around and they're all laughing and they're all having a great time. Not walking to the kitchen and seeing their dad scoffing a big plate of meat Kind to come up with an insurrection with his with his with his eight territorial army mates. <laughs> you know I mean? um, so I guess it, I guess fun is the word, isn't it? Fun's is what I'm looking for. Turning the bad into fun, turning the good into fun, having fun, being drawn to the fun, uh, and trying to make the fun work for you.
0: What a beautiful sentiment, uh, Danny. Uh, inspirational stuff. Thank you ever so much for talking to me today and being so open. It's been really lovely and really interesting too so thanks mate thank you i don't talk about that stuff much. So it's you know click in the middle so it's nice to talk about it with someone like you quite well i feel honored that you have done and um and you know i uh, hope it hasn't been too awkward mate but if it has <laughs> maybe it's something to write about <laughs> one day it's all right i'll go on another podcast in a minute and talk about it yeah all the best cheers mate see ya Well, that was Danny Wallace, the Renaissance Man's Renaissance Man. What a bloke. I hope you enjoyed listening to that. Read all of Danny's books if you haven't already is my advice. The one he was talking about in the chat there was Fuck You Very Much, a brilliant dissection of why people are so rude. I can highly recommend that and all the others. That's it for this week. Please subscribe to The Reset at for a fiver a month. You get early access to this pod, plus loads of bonus episodes and columns too. Also, give me a follow on Instagram, if you can be bothered, where I go by the name The Reset Sam. Oh, and buy my book, which is called Sort Your Head Out, Mental Health About All the Bollocks. It's out now in all formats on Amazon and all the other places too. Until next time, gang, thanks for listening. Be lucky and don't let the dickheads get you down.